Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Saturday, October 19, 2019, is a part of the Diamondstein Spielvogel Forum on History and the Public Good. In this talk, Emmy Award-winning journalist Ari Melber speaks with legal expert Akila Ridamar about the relationship between government and the press. Well, good morning to you all. We're in for a treat. We have uh, with us this morning uh, one of uh, New York's, indeed one of America's, indeed one of the world's great <laughs> lawyer journalists. Yes, yes. Um, uh, uh, lawyers do great things in the world, and, and so do journalists, and Ari does both. Um, of course, um, and we're going to talk about um, law and journalism. Um, we're, of course, going to talk about history, because uh, this is the New York Historical Society, and, and New York history in particular, because this is the media capital of, of the world and, and has been for a very long time. Um, and we're also going to talk about current events, which is um, a focus in particular of the New York Historical Society, as, as you all um, uh, know. Uh, so um, we're going to do all, and, and so we might even end up talking about things like presidential impeachment. <laughs> um, uh, so, but um, um, uh, and I'm going to be interviewing Ari. It's going to be a role reversal. He usually is the interviewer, but he's going to be the interviewee. But before um, I, I, I ask him a little bit about about his history and biography. Um, I'm going to tell you all, I'm going to set the stage a little bit by, by taking us back uh, to um, uh, the role of the media, of the press, in holding power, governmental power, accountable. And it's a story that actually begins in New York City um, hundreds of years ago, 1733. Um, and there's this... Uh, media outlet. It's called MSNB. No, no, no. I'm getting confused. Um, um, it's called the New York Weekly Journal. Uh, and it's published uh, by John Peter Zenger. Um, and there, they, we don't have a president of the United States yet, but we've got a chief executive, um, the governor of New York. His name is William Cosby. And believe it or not, he's thin-skinned. Sometimes executives can be that way. Um, and the New York Weekly Journal... Um, runs all sorts of pieces printed by Cosby. We don't know who wrote them because uh, they're, they're anonymous. Um, but his newspaper prints them, uh, Ari, and um, they criticize the chief executive, Cosby, who's a royal appointee from, from uh, the British Crown, um, for um, rigging elections um, and um, being in cahoots with a foreign power. I'm not making this up. It wasn't Russia. It was France back then. But France, you see, was um, England's great rival and adversary. Um, so it's, you know, plus ça change. Plus c'est la même chose. So um, uh, Cosby is not amused. Um, and so he first uh, so, uh, tries to get a grand jury to indict um, Zenger for these, this defamation. And a grand jury refuses to do it. 
So then he proceeds um, to prosecute without a grand jury, a thing called information. And Zenger is basically imprisoned for eight months, um, pending trial. And his wife dutifully puts out issues of the New York Weekly Journal. Um, so they bring in an outside lawyer to defend um, uh, um, Zenger, who's being sued for basically sedition, for bringing the government into disrepute, uh, for criticizing the government. Um, his name is Hamilton. Um, not Alexander, but I'm going to tell you about him in just a minute. His name is Andrew Hamilton. He's a very great Philadelphia lawyer. And he comes in um, pro hac vici, from out of state, to defend um, uh, Zenger. The, the, the presiding judge is the chief justice of the state, who's been appointed by Cosby, uh, the, uh, Delancey, a famous New York family. Um, and, um, and Zenger basically has no defense, because it, he admits that he printed the thing there, these copies of, of the New York Weekly Journal with all this nasty stuff about Cosby. Um, and under the law at the time, British common law, um, the only issue for the jury to decide is um, uh, publication. Did the defendant actually publish it? It was a legal question for the judge to decide whether that was defamatory. And Delancey is going to rule for, uh, for Cosby. So what do you do if you're Andrew Hamilton? You appeal to the jury. Uh, it's an appeal we would call today a certain kind of jury nullification. Um, and he basically says to the jury, you should decide. You're the judges of fact and law. Um, you shouldn't have to merely decide this little narrow question, did he publish it or not? You should decide, actually, whether it's truthful. Um, and, 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 we should, and, and that's up to you, the jury, to decide. And Delancey says, that's not your job. I decide whether it's, de it's defamation or not, whether it was legitimate or not. You just decide publication. So Delancey tells them one thing. Andrew Hamilton tells them the other thing. They go, uh, they, they go out 10 minutes later. They come back with a not guilty. And that is an amazing New York story about the New York press holding accountable the chief executive. Um, uh, uh, and, and it's a story that, that continues today. I'm going to come back um, and tell a story about another um, Hamilton and another um, uh, New York um, uh, media experience. It's the Croswell case in 1803-04. But before I do that, I want to get um, uh, the, the current uh, John Peter Zenger uh, into the into the conversation. So, so Ari, since this is the Historical Society, you're in New York. You're in a great New York um, uh, lawyer, journalist, media person. But you did not begin that way. Um, what's your history? And and why law and journalism and and and, and the connection between them? What was that all about? Uh, well, thank you for the story and the introduction. Good morning, everyone. Give yourselves a hand. Saturday morning, and you're up learning. <laughs> Wasn't enough all week. You want more news and history and, and whatever else this is, so thanks for joining us. Um, I, I think this, these are auspicious times to think about our history and what we can learn from it um, as we go through what is also a very difficult time in our civic and political life. In terms of, of I guess you're asking the, the Admiral Stockdale question when he came out as Ross Perot's <laughs> running mate and says... Who am I? What am I doing here? And everyone thought, well, yeah. Um, I, 
you know, started out working directly in government. I went and worked for a senator on Capitol Hill, Marie Cantwell. I worked for uh, John Kerry, uh, first thing out of college. And then I went and got a law degree and was writing and was thinking, well, I don't, I don't think I want to stay in directly working in government. Uh, got a feel for that, respect it, but it wasn't where I wanted to apply my skills. Uh, and so I liked getting a law degree as a way to engage in the issues of government and policy, um, but having a little more flexibility, or I hoped, autonomy. Uh, and then I was writing and doing media sort of on the side of that. And I was working for Floyd Abrams, um, who's representing the New York Times and a lot of other uh, major publications and outlets in, in First Amendment work. Um, and I enjoyed that, and I was going up as a guest. For those of you who watch the news, you have your anchors and your hosts, and you have all the guests who come in and out, and some of them come on more and more, and some of them end up guest hosting, and it was really organic in that sense. So it was not a master plan, but through that process of sort of, you know, hanging around the, the court, um, uh, MSNBC in 2013 said, oh, would you like to come over full time and, and join a show? And it wasn't really as a legal correspondent. Uh, I always tell people the, the real answer is not really all that thought out or, or even glamorous. They changed something on the weeknights, so they had a vacancy there. They put Chris Hayes in there which created a vacancy on the weekend morning. And they put a guy named Steve Kornacki in there. And then they had another vacancy that Steve left. And they said, well, who are we going to do to fill that? And that's where I came in. So it wasn't like they needed more Ari or anything like that. They just had that hole from three dominoes down. Uh, and then I loved the opportunity. I loved engaging it. And over time, over several years there, I said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer. Uh, and I'd love to do more legal reporting. And one of the executives I worked with there said, Lawyer, yeah, but you never really like practiced. And I said, well, no, I've been, I was practicing for the last several years while I was coming in here. And he was like, oh, great, you're on here so much. I didn't know you were doing anything else. Um, and so it really was literally, even if my own bosses didn't know that, I wouldn't say that it was like some great, uh, great asset. Uh, but I more raised my hand uh, and started doing more of that reporting. And then it, it sort of evolved from there. And a lot of the stories you're, that you cover as a journalist do have a legal angle. Well, I think about that now. If a, a lot of people, if you watch Rachel Maddow, or some people watch Sean Hannity, or some people love Lester Holt and George Stephanopoulos, uh, the people I just named, none of them are per se lawyers, but I think their top stories for the last several years, even, even really before Trump's election, if you look at the way 2016 was, uh, was unfolding, are all legal stories, uh, whether they're covering the Hillary Clinton investigation or the way Donald Trump reacted to it or the Russia investigation or the Mueller probe or everything we're going through now, uh, I think that our politics have been in a more legal or legalistic frame. And I think that's for a variety of reasons, some of them perhaps unavoidable because there's a lot more criminals working in politics. <laughs> so it becomes relevant. But that's only one piece of it. The other piece is that in a time of great strain, we, we see political leaders resort more swiftly and immediately uh, to legal and criminal frames, which I think is not itself a good thing, but it's probably more of a symptom than anything else of the level of strain and the level of existential conflicts that we're seeing played out in American uh, political life. So that's a good segue, because I told you about um, this governor who was thin-skinned, and now the, the, the person that he's trying to criminalize is, a is not a fellow politician, but the press. So, um, and today, politicians try to criminalize each other's 
behavior. Let me tell you the next story because we, I promise you we're going to talk about presidential impeachment, so let me tell you about a president in New York history, and his name is Thomas Jefferson, and oh, he's thin-skinned. He's very thin-skinned, and he has become president by opposing a sedition act that John Adams signed into law that made it a crime, basically, to criticize the president. It's a crime to criticize the president. It's a crime to criticize Congress. It's not a crime to criticize the vice president, who's the leader of the opposite party, who was at the time Thomas Jefferson. It's a crime for challengers to criticize incumbents, but not for incumbents to criticize challengers. Um, so all this sucked, and Thomas Jefferson runs against the Sedition Act and, uh, and wins, saying, you know, you're criminalizing our behavior. That's not right. And so now he's president, and the press is now attacking him, and he, his platform is, oh, I, I can't really quite prosecute them because I, I ran against the Sedition Act. Oh, but I ran against a federal Sedition Act. <laughs> Nothing wrong with states going after people who, who criticize the president because the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech in the press. So, so Jefferson doesn't like, he's a very thin-skinned guy. He doesn't like these people criticizing him. So he, he basically... Um, uh, asks people in New York to go after um, this fellow, Harry Croswell, who's saying all sorts of nasty things about him, saying, for example, that he, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson, had journalists on the payroll, that he paid secretly to attack John Adams and, and uh, George Washington and others. So now Croswell, he's a New York um, journalist, and he's prosecuted for defaming the president. Um, and you might say, oh, well, the Zenger case, because you know, he thinks truth is basically a defense. But remember, the Zenger case wasn't a judicial ruling. It was just a jury nullification. The law is still very much against journalists. Um, in England, under English common law, truth is not a defense. In fact, the truer it is, the worse the libel is at that time under English law because you're bringing duly constituted authority into disrepute. So the more true it is, the worse it is, because it demoralizes uh, the citizenry to know that their, their leaders are crooks. So Croswell loses at trial, because under um, uh, the law at the time, it's still um, uh, not lawful to, to say nasty things about people, even if true. So Croswell gets this great attorney on appeal, and his name is Hamilton. Uh, now a different Hamilton, Alexander, not Andrew, no relation. Alexander Hamilton. And Alexander Hamilton, at the, uh, uh, on appeal, um, argues before the New York's highest court um, that basically, even if truth isn't an absolute defense, it should be at least be admissible for the defendant to say, listen, this is all true, and I did it for good public regarding reasons. And Hamilton gets some of the judges to agree with him. Chancellor Kent, the, the chief judge of New York, a, a Yale graduate. There's this long connection between Yale and New York, I want you to all, uh, all to know. Um, and, and Kent is, is Hamilton's you know, best friend, and, uh, and he rules um, for Hamilton's client, but other judges aren't so persuaded. Um, so, uh, but Croswell is never, in the end, punished. Um, he's just sort of languishing. And the New York legislature, the next year, this is 1803-1804, next year, um, the New York legislature actually passes a statute that will allow defendants to argue truth uh, um, in defamation cases. Um, so another extraordinary story about New York um, uh, uh, journalists holding 
uh, power to account, this time a president of the United States. One final little wrinkle on this, uh, for those of you who have seen the musical, um, that would be everyone, um, my friend Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical. Um, so while Hamilton is up in Albany defending Croswell, he goes to a dinner party and he, um, I guess, badmouths um, Aaron Burr. And Aaron Burr gets wind of this, and that's what precipitates the dual challenge, you see, because if you can't sue people who, who say nasty things about you or write nasty things about you, maybe you're going to resort to other ways of protecting your reputation. And the code duello, you see, was a kind of alternative to, um, to libel suits um, back then when people are thin-skinned about their reputations. They're not thin-skinned anymore, of course. Um, now. That's a little history lesson. You're an historian, too. You're not just a lawyer. You're not just a journalist. You've been thinking a lot about presidential impeachment for some reason. I don't know why. But um, um, uh, tell me about how lawyers think about history, maybe slightly different than historians, and how you've been thinking about history in the context of a presidential impeachment. And I know you've actually done some research in particular about our first presidential impeachment, which is the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Yes, sir. Uh, it's fun to think about it this way because we spend so much time, I think, in political life and in the news, we reference these things, but we kind of it's kind of like running right by them. And what, what we're doing this morning is thinking about history uh, as something that can really enlighten this. And one of the weird things about lawyers and, and the way American legal practice works is precedent is held up as the solution. So within the confines, right, of, of any case, and I'm sure we have lawyers in the room and plenty of people who have familiarity, to say that something was resolved a certain way by a court is the first way to resolve it. And that becomes the force of precedent. Well, in very simple cases, that's easy. If you have a dispute about when you can get out of your lease and the courts in New York have said you can get out within this amount of time, that's the end of it. It's not a big debate. When you look at the harder cases, you say, well, the courts resolved racial discrimination this way 100 years ago. My first guess, and I was thinking about this a lot while I was in law school, so you're learning how we do it, but then also trying to make sense of it, is, well, that's almost certainly how we should not do it then, right? Well, the courts resolved gender discrimination this way 200 years ago by ignoring it and claiming it didn't exist or treating one gender as superior to the other. Okay, so we should definitely not do that. And so the legal reasoning around precedent, I think, is very different than history, where we just say, okay, what can we learn from this? Interesting, let's go. In law, we have this sort of, I think it's a bit of a fiction, but it's precedent is something that resolves cases, so we have to apply it, except if you go back far enough, in which case it's totally useless <laughs> uh, or sends you in the wrong direction. Um, and much more experienced historians and legal thinkers than myself have have grappled with this and come up with the reasons why, okay, well then yes to this precedent, but no to that one, and a high bar to overturn it, but we do do that sometimes, or social issues, much more of something we're going to rethink than others. Um, so there's all, such, all sorts of such analysis. I say all of that by way of thinking about the, the first impeachment we had in, in America of, of President Johnson. The first presidential impeachment. First pre that's all there I mean, were lower court. Uh, there were ju judicial impeachments. Yeah, we've yeah. had dozens of impeachments because the Constitution provides for impeachment for high crimes, bribery, uh, treason, or misdemeanor for any, any such official. But the presidential model, 
Because the Johnson impeachment, um, I think, has both examples in it. The Johnson impeachment has both the idea that, well, the way they used to do this doesn't help us do it that much today. Indeed, it warns against it, because uh, President Johnson's detractors were out to impeach him from the jump. Um, there were about three different efforts to do it for different reasons. Uh, they were literally looking uh, for any reason to get rid of him. Imagine that. <laughs> and, and the precedent that he was hit with 11 articles of impeachment in the House is pretty striking. You need one to get rid of the president if you, can, if you have the votes, right? 11 tells you about some level of antipathy. Um, and as for textualism, where we say, OK, what's a high crime? What's treason? Uh, one of the 11 articles of impeachment against him was disgracing the office of the president and bringing it ridicule. And I can tell you that a lot of people feel, if that's all you need, let's go. I got the Twitter, done. Takes a day. Let me just, on, just on that in particular, in 1866, in what was called the Great Swing Around the Circle, Andrew Johnson, uh, in unprecedented fashion for a sitting president, basically went trying to see off-year elections, um, bad-mouthing Congress uh, like at, at, uh, nothing America had ever seen before. Um, now, today, we'd say, well, you're allowed to campaign. You're allowed to be very robust. But, but that was seen as distinctly unprecedented um, and unprecedented. He would get into it with um, people in the crowd. They'd heckle him, and he'd heckle them back, and he'd you know, get down and dirty in ways that were seen as and criticizing Congress. So again, kind of defamation. So that's actually what that article of impeachment yeah, was all one, about. And one of the other articles of impeachment was explicitly about his battles with Congress, which, again, is that a good precedent? It happened. But is that a good precedent if the people in Congress make the call and it's literally impeachable if they think that you disrespected, offended, or otherwise didn't show them respect. I don't think that's the greatest precedent, but it is what happened in the House. And in the Senate, on three articles, um, he came within one vote of conviction and, and removal. Very, very close. Uh, and so, on the one hand, that's what I would argue is a cautionary part of this. On the other hand, the historical dynamic was that Johnson's actual offenses, the the things he was doing that people were most concerned about in the North was undoing uh, the Lincoln agenda, was reasserting and doubling down on the racist systems of the South, which you'd literally just come out of a civil war and then an assassination to deal with. And so while you might not have the technical constitutional language there, the Constitution only lists two specific offenses as impeachable, for example, treason and bribery, you don't have a textualist argument that bribery was the issue. It wasn't bribery. It's not like, I don't know, you took money and conditioned it on getting an investigation of your rival. That would be, <laughs> and it's like very clear. But, but, it, but it was, according to many people in the Congress at the time, it was worse than bribery because it was undoing everything that they'd fought for and won in the Civil War because it was this racist president who just took over because of the crime and the accident of an assassination. And so that was the undertow. That obviously also echoes today because if you ask some people what they dislike or oppose most about the current president, it might be very specific policies, and that can sound very highbrow or almost um, technical. If you ask other people, um, what they, what they oppose most about the current president, 
And, and in my reporting, part of my job is to listen. I go to Trump rallies. I listen to people there. I go to other places and resistance. I listen to people there. A lot of what I hear from people is the pain and the disrespect of having a president um, who is so openly hostile, discriminatory, racist, and sexist towards the people who live in this country, the citizens of this country, is a great offense. Uh, and that people feel that they feel like they're living through a time where they're going backwards because of the president's complete disrespect. Now, is that impeachable? Not technically, or at least not traditionally, but it might animate some of this the same way uh, people in that period were animated. So I think about all of that as a history where, as we head into this and we think about how we cover it and everyone's going to pay attention if the, if the votes are there, what do we learn from history and what helps us understand what's happening even if it's not technically what people say is happening. And then what are the guardrails and the limits? Because uh, having said all that, I don't think as a country we're going in a good direction if mere disagreement or opprobrium animates uh, the potential conviction and removal of federal officials at any level. I think we also have to watch out for that. Um, the best argument for Andrew Johnson's uh, uh, conviction would have been... Um, even if it's not technically treason, even if it's not technically bribery, what Johnson was doing was pretty close to both. He was pardoning on a mass scale um, people who actually had committed treason against the United States, um, the, the, the leaders of the Confederacy, and doing so for his own political advantage so that they would basically support him in the next election. And maybe that's not technically bribery and maybe that's not technically treason. Oh, but it's somewhat similar to those things. And he wasn't enforcing congressional reconstruction laws and not faithfully executing um, uh, the law. So that was that the, the best um, of the 11 articles of impeachment was the last one. It was a kind of an omnibus, you know, everything all together. Um, uh, um, uh, so let's now flash forward um, and talk about the next major presidential impeachment um, event. Um, you're not born yet, so it's history for you. Um, but, but for some of us, it's our lived ex experience, um, and the press is going to play a big um, role in this. Um, uh, uh, I think a year or two ago, um, I got to be an interviewer um, here on this stage of, of Bob Woodward. You know, another great um, uh, uh, journalist. So, so, so I... The, bo the booking here is going downhill. <laughs> you start with Woodward and then... So, the next Woodward. Um, Bernstein. So, um, uh, and, and my last book was actually dedicated to, to Bob Woodward. Um, and uh, he's, he was a hero of mine. I think I went into law, and I did journalism actually in, in high school because I was so inspired by Woodward. Um, so this is, again, the press holding accountable um, uh, power, in particular presidential power, um, and, and bringing to light um, very strong evidence of abuses of power by a president. So the press is <coughs> in the middle of all this. And I would say, actually, as an historian, that the relationship between the press and the presidency has always been interesting, all the way back to, to Thomas Jefferson and George Washington's era. But uh, Watergate was a, a new turn in, in, in the story. The press covers the president much more adversarially post-Watergate than pre-Watergate. And, and, and you're in this tradition, this Woodward-Bernstein tradition. So 
Do you <clears throat> think about Watergate at all? Um, is this another um, episode that you've tried to study a little bit as you think about presidential impeachment? We'll talk about Clinton in just a minute. We're just going through the precedents, because how you, you, you said, you should talk about, the, and the precedents are presidential impeachment. So you've got Johnson, and we're gonna do Nixon, we'll do Clinton, and then we'll get up to Trump. Uh, I think it's a great question because a lot of what happens in the in the press, whether we're doing it or people are, are consuming it, turns on what your premise is. I have people who come up to me in the street, they watch the show, they like some part of the show, and they're angry with me for having uh, President Trump's attorney, Jay Sekulow, on. They're angry with me for having, right, some of you may agree with that, which is fine. Uh, obviously, I disagree because I choose to have him on. Um, or pick someone more controversial, uh, Jerome Corsi, who's a birther, or Steve Bannon, um, who I don't think would come to my Passover Seder, <laughs> even if invited. Um, and so what I see there is not a difference of opinion, because anyone can have that, but a difference of premise about what it is I'm trying to do and what someone else thinks is a breach of what I should be doing by even engaging with that. And so to, to pick up on that in the wider frame of the, of the, the very erudite question you pose, from what I understand, uh, what Watergate did was both, I think, a change in impact and a change in <coughs> posture. The impact was the notion that these reporters would follow a story to the degree that it would topple the presidency, which was almost unfathomable that the press would be driving that. And the Washington Post then, I don't think, if, if you look at the history, um, was the Washington Post we think of today. Mm -hmm. It was a much scrappier, more local paper. Yes, yes. it was in Washington. Yep. But it was not... The local paper. Yeah, it, it was, was not, not the New York Times. It was not Amazon-backed. It was not Democracy Dies in Darkness. It was, And it was not on par with the Times. And here we go. So that's the impact. And then you have the posture, which was um, really deciding that the president and the White House's word did not get the same automatic deference it used to get, uh, and that a good story wasn't just holding someone accountable or exposing something, but really going at them and taking them out. And I think what you saw after that, and again, it depends on what the motivation is, there it turned out, see, it's always interesting to think about the counterfactual. It turned out in the end how, that it was really bad what the White House was doing. That's the technical historical term. <laughs> but of course, not everyone knew that then. So you go there, you go to the mat, you go to that degree, and you're proven right. But how many other reporters then go along and start pursuing any president, any politician, any candidate uh, over smaller things with the same notion of, well, we got to target them, that's our job, or that's how you get prizes, or all the mixed incentives that in messy human life people are motivated by. And so I, I do think there's several sides to that. The third piece of this is... The notion, and this is something I, we think about a lot on my team in terms of how we pick stories and who we interview, the notion that something is important and should be exposed or broadcast or printed to me is very different than the notion that it should be exposed and then something else should happen. So I'll pick two you know, extreme examples. If you take a, one extreme example like My Lai Massacre, I don't think that most people would say, oh, well, we'll expose it, and then we'll see. Who knows? It's okay, maybe. We'll just see. No, there's very obviously, if you go on something that is horrific enough, the exposure is combined with fixing it and stopping it. Uh, and yet there are other stories 
where I think if you're using a traditional objective journalism model, and this would apply to some of the interviews that I, that I mentioned at the top, the point is to just do it. And whether or not it leads to something else or some moment or someone getting in trouble is not supposed to be our job. And to pick one specific example in print, print being better than television, right, usually, um, the, the New York Times had a big story about after 9-11, the lengths that the, the Bush administration was going to do financial surveillance to catch terrorists. This SWIFT program and all this stuff. I don't, does anyone remember this? It was controversial at the time. It was not the audio surveillance. It was not Patriot Act letters. It was this financial thing. And they, they had a big battle. They finally published the story. And I heard one of the reporters talking about it, months in the making, going to the mats, legal threats, all that. And when they ran it and showed that they were going further than before to go into the banks, a lot of the reaction, even on the left, was, OK. I mean, you want to dig through bank records to find al-Qaeda? Fine. It wasn't a Fourth Amendment violation, et cetera. And the reporter said, you know, what was important was getting the news out there. And the fact that the democracy, the public, with the facts, didn't see it as a big scandal and didn't want to change policy was okay. That, I think, is also something to think about as a measured example that's different than maybe the most aggressive Watergate model, which is a, a couple reporters in a room decide they think something's terrible, expose it, and then want everyone to join them in stopping it, which it, it may be a bridge too far. So you've mentioned now this very interesting possible contrast between print journalism and television journalism. And with Nixon, unlike um, Andrew Johnson, we're now, or Croswell or, um, uh, or Zenger, we're now moving into the era of television. We had Dan Rather, let's say, alongside Woodward and Bernstein. In the next presidential impeachment cycle, Bill Clinton, television even more prominent, perhaps. Cable is beginning. I can't remember, but I think Cable yeah, was, right. cable was um, uh, beginning to be a, a real presence. And uh, so um, take us through your ruminations about that precedent, um, uh, both legally and um, what you think about um, the journalism uh, that was uh, involved in the, the Clinton impeachment um, uh, situation. Well, Clinton, is, as we all know, the House ultimately passed four articles of impeachment. The Senate, I mean, excuse me, uh, voted on four, passed two, and the Senate heard those two and convicted on neither, and several Republicans joined in voting not guilty. And so I think in contrast to Johnson, which we discussed before, or Nixon, where the expectation of conviction was so high, he, he just got on the helicopter, um, this was an example where it really went the total extreme other direction. And I think, in a way, it shows that I mean, you're asking a question about the press that also engages what happened. I think what happened was, however objectionable the president's conduct was, it was exposed, it was widely criticized. By way of political history, there were more prominent Democrats more loudly publicly criticizing the underlying conduct before the impeachment vote then than Republicans criticizing Donald Trump now. Right? I mean, Joe Lieberman came out and said, this, is, this conduct is disgusting, um, but it doesn't happen to be legally impeachable. Those are different things. And then the Democratic Party made him the running mate for the very next cycle in the election. Um, so politically, I think it's fascinating. We talk about the value of history. That's not a precedent. It just reminds you. 
And there, that was conduct that even the critics didn't think was impeachable. Here you have stuff that, as a lawyer or whatever person, I would say, at least is in the ballpark of considering impeach, impeaching the president when you look at the bribe that's been admitted to, Mick Mulvaney Thursday saying, yeah, yeah, we conditioned the money on the illegal probe of the Bidens. Get over it. Right? What, what else are you waiting for? So, and, and well, did, did he say illegal? I said illegal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I'm, I'm the chief legal correspondent. I have to say what's legal and illegal. That's like my, what I do. Um, and it is illegal, uh-huh. actually. Uh-huh. It is illegal um, to do that. Meaning if a federal official, take the president out of its special case, if a federal official is really caught up in the, you know, there have been Democratic politicians in New York State who have gone to prison for less than that on mm-hmm. honest services fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but that's all on the legal side, impeachment analysis. On the press side, right, I think the press had a story at the time that was so hot, hot for TV, hot for print, uh, that they were going to stay on that endlessly. And that's why it's interesting when people talk about bias and motivation, um, whether the press really thought the president should be impeached for it or not, or really thought it was the worst thing a president had ever done, or even the worst thing anyone they knew had ever done, or whether it was arguably perhaps commonplace, which might be a bad thing, but again, doesn't mean they thought it was impeachable, almost had no bearing whatsoever, right? So it wasn't a liberal or conservative thing or a Democrat or Republican. The press thought that story was so hot, and they went to town on it. Uh, and I think that's severely impacted the second term of the president. So um, we're going to get, again, we're, we're going to end up with the uh, Trump impeachment, but, but um, you kind of alluded to um, uh, the nature of some of the, the, the accusations, uh, Lieberman uh, uh, attention to the, the, the somewhat tawdry facts uh, 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 underlying um, the Clinton uh, impeachment. Um, the press, of course, now is also at about the same era playing a big role um, uh, uh, vis-a-vis John Edwards, um, Gary Hart. Um, how, how to think, and, and TV perhaps in particular, um, some of these sex scandals. And I'm going to ask you also, in the context of that, um, to comment, if you would, on um, sex scandals that have involved the media itself. Um, indeed, even um, NBC itself. Um, Ronan Farrow, who used to be at, I think, MSNBC, and, um, and um, some of his exposés of um, um, your employer and the media itself and all of this. And then we'll, that will be a good segue, I think, to um, uh, um, uh, the, the, the Trump stuff. Yeah, well, I think, so in the, in the Clinton example... His defenders were insisting this was personal conduct. Uh, His critics would argue, well, because of the job he had and that some of it was workplace, that was at best debatable. Uh, In some of the cases you've mentioned, it goes beyond personal, which is how does someone handle their their relationships or mistakes they make in relationships and gets into what we would call civil or criminal infractions, allegedly, right? And that's very different if you have workplace harassment or you have workplace issues that are defined and handled by the employer or, in some cases, by the authorities. Um, the, the Weinstein case that set off what is called the, the Me Too era um, has resulted in uh, criminal charges. 
So as when I cover criminal cases all the time, he is on the one hand presumed innocent as he goes through legally. On the other hand, is that a workplace story? It is more than that. Uh, and so I think whether the press is pulled into that because they are also a workplace uh, mm -hmm. and have their own issues or whether that we're covering it, we have to be very clear about the difference between, for example, uh, a situation where you're saying, do you dig into Gary Hart's private life um, because he is running for office. Mm -hmm. And if you do, can you define to the, to the audience what the substantive standard is for why you're doing that? Is it that it's available, like he's running around town and it's very public that at a certain point in today's world we'd call it TMZ, then it was photographers running around, but that it's, it's there, so why would you not cover it? Or is it that uh, it's important enough to cover. I think you have to explain to the audience and the press has to decide what those standards are. And that would be what, we're, what, what you'd call a public person's potential private life mm -hmm. and how private it stays. Which and, is, and we go back all the way to Mariah Reynolds and Alexander Hamilton, for example. Right. Or and the Thomas letter, Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Um, which is a different category than whether someone is accused of what I would call, again, being the lawyer about it, a potential civil or criminal infraction whether that's alleged or charged, and you say, well, now we're covering that, and that can be a clearer case of, well, if there are accusers or if the fact-checking process plays out, that's that category. I think the Clinton case, the Bill Clinton case, um, hasn't aged as well, but it is easy to forget that at the time, many of his chief political rivals were clearly acting in hypocritical bad faith. So on the one hand, it might look different today, and thus people, we could all learn from it and, and think about that. But on the other hand, uh, if you read the, the New York Times story, the New York Times uh, book about it by Peter Baker has this gripping scene where the speaker, the Republican Speaker of the House steps down because of his affairs exposed, and they pick the second one, Livingston. And the morning they're caucusing over the impeachment, he gets up in front of the room and tells the group of Republicans, I have an announcement. I also have to step down. And he says in the room, they were like, oh, my God. Like, they're like, do we not have anyone who can lead this thin case against the other side? It was that climate. And so both things can be true. There can be a ton of bad faith political hypocrisy by Clinton's detractors, which is why I think a lot of people rallied around him who were still, as I quoted Senator Lieberman as one example, on his side and disgusted with the underlying conduct, and yet... As society evolves, people look at that and say, but also that that's not something you want to defend and say, oh, just any mm -hmm. president should do that in the Oval Office. Now, um, since you're talking about different strata of media, sort of the New York Times being the paper of record, whereas at, at a certain time, Washington Post was, was just a scrappy um, local publication. With John Edwards, we actually have, in a way, the mainstreaming of whether one is coming up or the rest of the media is coming down. Um, that's a story broken by the National Enquirer, actually. True. And it, it, it drives the thing, and then the rest of the media said, oh, well, now it's a story, so we can we control uh, those waters um, also. Um, did you cut, which takes us, I think, to Access Hollywood, which is in the segue to um, the, the current thing. Did you cover the Access Hollywood stuff? I did. I was actually... So I didn't have a, a show at the time, but I remember it vividly because I was uh, guest hosting the day the video broke. So I didn't have a show, so it wasn't like every day I was going into a room and having the conversations that we do now where we try to 
think through everything. I was running around on the campaign trail, but then I was filling in the day the video broke. So I remember the video and being like, wow. And then going out uh, on set and we played the bleeped version of it and then hearing from guests. Um, and it was, yeah, it was uh, the candidate and Billy Bush, who at the time was a, he wasn't at my MSNBC company, but he was within the larger uh, parent company. And we played it and we reported on it. And it was a, I've never seen anything like that. It was one of those moments, a lot of the Republicans I knew that I was talking to covering it, believed this was the end. Like, people really believed that. Um, so I think that does take us up to, um, uh, because you said, oh, there, there are all these accusations against Andrew Johnson. There are 11, and they, just are, they proliferate. They're trying to find something on. There's been lots of stuff about uh, President Trump from even the days before he was uh, president with Access Hollywood when he's a candidate. So, so all these things. But I think we're now up to the, the Trump um, impeachment, and you're all over that, you know, 24-7, your, your network all the time. So, so just walk us through some of the, the issues that you think that we um, should, uh, um, uh, uh, as a sort of um, um, educated um, and, uh, uh, and uh, virtuous citizens should, should um, understand. All right, can we do, can we do two, two polling questions by a show of hands? I'm very curious. Question one is, do you think there would be enough evidence, in your view, to impeach today? And question two is, do you think there's enough evidence to convict and remove today? And I ask you that as a question of the evidence, not whether or not you happen to vote for a candidate. I would hope we would agree that just because you voted against a candidate doesn't mean you think they should be removed no matter what through impeachment. Uh, question one, how many people think there's enough evidence to impeach today? Okay, I, that's easily over 80%. And how many people think there's enough evidence to convict and remove today? Yeah, okay. So that's always interesting, and I ask those questions when I go different places around the country. It gives you a quick sample. Mm -hmm. Where uh, do you go, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, no, when you're yeah, not on TV, where, you know, or here at 30 Rock, you know, where, where are you going? I try, to, I try to only go to the parts of the country with the highest density Jewish population. <laughs> I just find... You're going to get 80% in those places. Let me put it like this. If I go to Boca, I feel a lot of positive reinforcement. <laughs> My job is stressful and it's demanding, but if I wake up and there's just 72 grandmothers <laughs> rushing the, the, the Marriott... Mm -hmm. um, no, we, well, for work, we go... For work, I, I'm here in D.C. the most, but in the campaign season, we end up in the, in the States. So I was, I mean, this is a, a discursion, but we'll get back to the impeachment. When I was in covering Trump, I'd be out in whatever key state it was. So I remember being in New Hampshire, and this was before he'd won any states. It was in the primary, and being there, and someone coming up and, and say, looking at me and saying, uh, oh, you're here, you're, you're media? You hear? And I said, yeah. And he said, kind of aggressive, kind of big, you know, aggressive, said, uh, well, I hope you don't lie about him again. 
And I said, if I was going to lie, I, didn't, I wouldn't need to come here. <laughs> I don't need to come and do eyewitness observation. If I'm just going to make it up back home, I don't need to be here. And he said, well, all right. You know. Uh, but you, you, you always learn, and you always engage, and you also get humanized by meeting all these different people and whatever. So I go to the state, primary states for that and travel a little bit otherwise, I guess, is the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the question about impeachment? Just what, what do you think we should understand yeah. about the press's role, about the law, since you are law-trained, about the history, since you do think about things um, historically. You've now thought about some of these yeah. precedents. So to, you know, um, um, and, and sometimes on the air, maybe you feel you can't um, just tell everyone. You're, you're interviewing other people. You're asking the questions. But, but what is it that we should understand? So I think, you know, I think the press has a different role than citizens. So people can be as in, enthused and opinionated and angry or excited as, as they choose. That's the great part of America. For the press, I think we should be adversarial and aggressive about getting the truth. But I don't think we should be prosecuting the case. I mean, I covered the Bill Cosby trial twice because there was a um, mistrial, and then I went back and covered it again. From what I could tell about the facts, which I did report, his conduct looked disgusting. So I could include that in my reporting. But I didn't see my role in covering the case as that going only the prosecution. I saw my role in covering the case as explaining both, both sides of that case as it went forward. And then some people get mad when you reference, well, the defense counsel made this argument. And people say, how can you say that? And, and you say, right, no, I, I got you. You think he's guilty. I, I actually think he's guilty, too. But I'm reporting the case. So I, don't, I think we get into trouble, we, the press, particularly on TV where things tend to simplify more, when we either are or appear to be prosecuting for an outcome, which is not what, I, it's not what I'm trying to do on my show. Uh, and it's not, I don't think, what most of us should be doing, although it, there's a wide, diverse spectrum. So if somebody wants to transparently say that's what they're doing, I mean, one example that I think is a, a good one is how many people have heard, like, you ever listen to Pod Save America, the podcast? Like, they're Obama folks. They, they, a lot of them came from the Obama campaign. They're talking about these issues, but they're, they're on the Obama side of the fight. They don't claim to be sort of journalists, but they create media. Um, so I think we should be adversarial and aggressive about the truth, but not necessarily trying to get to an outcome of the case. Now, as for what we're going to see in impeachment, that's how we cover it. What are we going to see? What is it? I think it is so fascinating, and I've obviously spent a lot of time watching this and talking to some of the players, that Donald Trump spent roughly two years trying to get a hold of the Mueller probe to a degree that Bob Mueller documented it as, quote, substantial evidence of obstruction. Substantial doesn't mean beyond a reasonable doubt, but it means, you know, closer to a crime. That's what Mueller was saying in his own Mueller way. And throughout that period, Trump also resisted doing an in-person interview where you end up saying more, um, partly on the advice of his lawyers. And he actually outmaneuvered the Mueller probe. If you look at what he stands accused of doing, what's documented that he did, he made it through the end of that thing. And turns around, and the next day gets on the phone to Ukraine. <laughs> that's a striking part. I, there's so much happening, I think it's easy to forget that that's literally the timeline. And then, when busted for that to a certain degree by people within his own administration, whistleblowers, comes out in public 
and does what we call now the pre-Mulvaney, although I really think Thursday was incredible, and says, yeah, I know I said no collusion for two years, but now actually, yes, collusion. So, so that's, that's the situation. The administration goes from no collusion to collusion. Uh, it's an extraordinary and brazen set of events. And so I think the amount of evidence that has come out, if you look at this as an extortion bribery plot, is strong. And then the question is, if you look at a constitution that says bribery is impeachable, what do you want to do about that? And I think the House has a ton of evidence, which means unless there's a, some sudden change of events or an off-ramp, they look to be on pace to vote articles of impeachment. And then you have a Senate trial where there isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that, that you're going to get two-thirds, but also there wasn't a lot of inkling that three months ago they were about to vote on impeachment. So I don't think the, the prediction game works very well. And I think the question for America is, does this process work out in a way that people have faith in it and think it was on the level and based on the evidence, or do they think it was completely partisan? Which is why one of the other things we try to avoid doing on my show, handicapping whether this will be good or bad for someone is almost completely impossible because it depends on what it is. If the Democrats have a highly politicized, highly partisan, ridiculous, fact-free process, it might hurt them. If they have a really solid process, it might help them. The impeachment power isn't supposed to be wielded purely for political electoral bargaining anyway. Uh, but obviously, we all know it's Congress, and they're going to have that in their heads. So I don't think there's any way to know that. And I think in the Senate side, if you think that, and this is where I'll land on what is this all about, if you think that the best way to deal with a president who is breaking norms, laws, of the Constitution, is to vote them out. But in doing that breaking, they are trying to tip or steal the election where you would vote them out. Your options have narrowed. And so there's a lot of things that get repeated over and over. And Nancy Pelosi, obviously, is not a fan of the president, but spent years saying the best thing to do is vote him out. And then you're looking at an ongoing plot that is designed to make sure the election is not on the level, is not a normal, fair election. And I don't, I don't think Joe Biden has had like a great six weeks here. And they have, he hasn't even been hit with the foreign subpoenas yet. So that is what is at stake. It's not me being alarmist and saying, oh my God, we don't have democracy anymore. We do, we have democracy, we have courts. Donald Trump lost six court rulings in the last two weeks. And a lot of things still work. Um, but you have to look at impeachment as an extraordinary remedy for an extraordinary time when the election itself is actively, publicly being, to quote Madison, effed with. So since you mentioned sort of the partisan nature of, of that, uh, of, of uh, our, our world, um, uh, I'm going to, you polled the audience, I'm going to poll them um, as well. How many of you who raised your hand either time, because so many people work in, in the media is part of this. Um, uh, we're very siloed. Some people only watch MSNBC. Some people only watch Fox. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. And, and so we think, oh, partisanship is bad. All the <laughs> other guys, we're never partisan. It's the other folks who are partisan. Um, so how many of you raised your hand either time, either time, voted for Trump? 
One? Okay. Okay. So that was very, that was very dramatic, you see, because I'm actually trying to make a point, too, um, that um, here's my lesson uh, uh, from these previous um, uh, ones, because it takes two-thirds. And you don't get two-thirds. Now, the radical Republicans, that's not today. That's the 1860s uh, term. Uh, that's um, uh, Charles Sumner and, and, and Lincoln's party have barely two-thirds if they hold everyone in place against uh, Johnson. But, but apart from that, which is pretty unusual in American history because the South hadn't come um, fully back in um, uh, um, uh, uh, to, the, to the Union after the, the, the Civil War into the House and Senate, you're going to need people in both parties to actually get a conviction. Um, sure. in, in most times, and especially today, you're going to need not a few, but a lot of people who genuinely supported the guy the first time around to say, we've changed our minds. And, and so to me, I'm not sure even that Romney counts that much. He never really liked the guy or Kasich. You know, I want, I'm really looking for lots of mainstream Republicans to switch the way Barry Goldwater... Um, I told Richard Nixon, you know, you don't have a dozen votes in the Senate if it comes to it, and you don't have mine, uh, the way you had Fred Thompson and um, Howard Baker um, uh, and um, Lowell Weicker and other basically mainstream moderate Republicans turning against uh, Richard Nixon. That's what it's actually going to take for two-thirds. People who genuinely supported the person um, for election saying, we can't stand for this, enough is enough. So, so um, uh, uh, I have your questions. Um, this one wasn't quite asked, but it's close enough to them since we're talking about you know, partisanship, how the world looks so different to, to people who voted for him versus people who voted against him. I voted against him. Don't blame me. Um, and I'm going to vote against him again. Uh, cards on the table. Um, but um, part of what we're seeing um, since Watergate when there were three networks, and Walter Cronkite told me every night, that's the way it is. Um, and that's, you know, um, and we were at least all getting the same news flow. We had fewer choices, um, but we were all pretty much experiencing the same um, uh, uh, summary of the day's events. And now you have not just 24-7, but so many choices. And some people choose Fox, and they get a certain news flow. And, um, and, um, and some people choose MSNBC. Um, how do you think about um, uh, not just your relationship to um, the government and to power? And you try to, yeah, I, I know you do try to get people on both sides on your show, and it's, it's very admirable that you do. But how do you think about your niche um, vis a vis um, the other networks? And in particular, I would say Fox. Um, but also CNN and, and the others in the, in the ecosystem, the press ecosystem, because each one has a slightly different stance vis-a-vis -vis, um, power and, 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 and this president in particular. I don't think a lot about what's on Fox in my hour. Um, I'm probably, honestly, slightly more aware of what's on CNN um, because it tracks news developments. So I don't look at it before I go on the air, and I don't have it on set, and different anchors make that call. But uh, my producers know. So if we're doing 80% of one thing and they're doing 80% of another, sometimes that'll come up 
after getting offset or okay just as awareness we think about that at the basic level of what are they covering and what are we covering and are we obviously to some degree competitors in the live news space i all i rarely think about that with fox news um we on at six are actually coincidentally against network news uh, but we i never look i literally never look at what their rundown is i have to be very informed about the news in general obviously but the notion that abc is doing whatever it 640 is not on our radar. I think that's a good thing um, because it means we're not overly, mm -hmm. we're not in our own heads reacting to that. Mm -hmm. um, and then with regard to the ecosystem I'm in, I do think there's much more of a consciousness, right? Which is our viewers are not only here for any one show. So they might be watching at 530 before me or after I go on the other shows. So I am conscious of sort of what messages they're getting about what's important and what's going on. Um, but I depart from that as warranted. I mean, one of the things is, are we talking about what you like or what's true? Mm -hmm. um, do you like the president coming in and the first thing he does first month in office is say, hey, remember how I was going to do religious discrimination and I announced I was going to ban Muslims? Well, now I'm going to do it by just a couple countries that are mostly Muslim. Do you like that? No. I can, I, I can publicly say I don't like that. I don't think it's a good idea. Looks like the same approach to the same discrimination. On our channel, it's not a secret to note that not only did people not like it, a lot of people said, well, I don't like it, and it's definitely unconstitutional. I didn't say that. I went on day one of the travel ban and said, when they said, so this is, this is bad, so it's got to be illegal, right? It's going to be unconstitutional. And I said, based on the precedent we have, this, most of this will probably be upheld. Uh, because the courts are so deferential to the immigration power. It's one of the, the president's strongest powers. Uh, and they may narrow a little. And, I say, and then people say, oh, how can you say that? Because saying something might be upheld or is legal sometimes is interpreted as saying it's okay. And a lot of critics, as you know, like to root everything they don't like in yeah. saying it's unconstitutional. So I said that. There's a little momentary blowback. I don't know my personality. I don't care that much, which I think is also a good thing. And in the end... Although the courts narrowed it on the way, the Supreme Court in the big case ultimately said you can do most of this. You did call it right. And, and so that's a thing where I am aware, to be honest, am I unaware that everyone around me is saying something a little more harsh or different? No, I kind of know that, but I have to just call it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, since some of you may have been here when my friend Neil Katyal was in the interview seat, he litigated the, the travel ban case. He wanted me to get involved. I actually declined about five times because I actually thought on the law he didn't deserve to win, and he didn't. He lost 5-4, and that's because you were even too nice to Trump's critics. The, the seven countries that were implicated, um, many of them are not Muslim countries at all, um, like North Korea and some of the biggest Muslim countries in the world, like India and Indonesia, we're weren't covered. Yeah. So he can call it you know, a Muslim ban. He can call it Thucydides or mustard plaster, you know, but it wasn't actually a Muslim ban, actually from a, a strictly formalistic, from narrow, the, legal written. point of view that I thought would actually have five votes and did have five votes, uh, in, in fact. So you called it right as a, as a lawyer because you had law training. Yeah, so that goes to your question about do you know the, the, the context you're operating in? Um, okay, so um, here are two, I think, related questions. We're moving to your questions now, um, and I think these are connected. Do you think the advent of 24-hour cable news has fundamentally changed how politics is covered by the press? And I would think this is related. Why has the press spent so much time covering Trump's tweets? 
especially when so many of them are untrue, because the tweets are connected to this cycle. And we've been talking, you see, about how Trump is watching TV and tweeting about TV, and then TV is responding to Trump in, in um, this uh, very new way. Yeah. Uh, I think 24-hour cable news has made politics faster, jumpier, more superficial. I think it's generally a negative. Um, but I love my job. <laughs> and we have ways we try not to fall into that. But yeah, I mean, if we're talking structural level, obviously. I mean, I read one study that said, do you know the uh, length of time of the average soundbite, meaning when we cut a clip in 1960 when they had television, was 45 seconds. Mm-hmm. And today it's six seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that is so strong, right? So network is still TV. It's the same medium. You can do McLuhan and all that. But even in that medium, everyone sits down, takes a breath, and listens to someone speak for 45 seconds, whether that's someone you agree with or not, versus the six seconds. Uh, I, I, that's striking. Now, we have ways we work against that. The tweet thing, look, it's always delicate. I don't want to come out in public and just slam how other people do things. There's more than one way to do things. So the way I'll answer the question is, is thus. Uh, on the beat, and though some of you may have seen it, so you have some idea what we do, we have an actual policy that we do not cover tweets as news if they are simply words, by which I mean if it is just the president saying stuff, it's not in our news rundown. And we found that that is the best way to refocus everyone because people go, this is new, or can you believe he called someone this name on Twitter? Yes, I can believe it, and no, it's not new. As opposed to a policy announcement. As opposed to action. So the president decided that he was going to order the Pentagon uh, to limit whether people who identify as trans could serve in the military. And rather than sending a memo or holding a meeting, he actually first announced that on Twitter. The The new policy. That policy. So we cover that, with or without whether you see the tweet or not, we cover that as a thing. Um, but him attacking and distracting through there, we don't do. Um, so that's our approach, and you do need to come up with new systems. It's like I've got a lot of young people who work on the team, and they're online, and everyone says, oh, my God, can you believe it? And they react. And so we had to explain and come up with the actual rubric so people understand so we don't refight that debate every day. It's kind of like having a bedtime. You, you give them a bedtime, then they know what time to go to bed. If you don't, every night it's like, why do I have to go to bed? Um. So connected to the earlier question about the ecosystem, you don't do this as much, you said, but um, my friend Chris Hayes does. I see Rachel Maddow. They often talk a lot about what the Fox anchors are doing and not doing. So Chris Hayes used to always try to bait uh, Bill O'Reilly, you know, or talk about or, um, or, um, what Hannity is saying or, or, or Tucker Carlson is saying. So maybe you don't do that, but some of the other folks on MSNBC seem to be in this direct, um, again, 24-7 Well, you number know, one, if response. you had to bet on someone, I would bet on Rachel over me. So there. Mm-hmm. But Num- she does that more than Number you. two, she does her show, which is quite erudite, and she's written two nonfiction books while doing her show. I haven't written any books. So, you know, you, you're good if you follow her. I do think that, I will say this on the, on the government side, we are in an environment, and, and Keel and I were talking about this just, just this morning before walking out here, where what used to be clearly segmented is, well, this is press and this is government. 
uh, on the Fox side has obviously merged. So John Bolton is a Fox analyst, then he's the national security advisor, then he goes back to conservative media. Tucker Carlson, uh, according to re reporters that I really trust, um, has had more influence over whole, dialing the president back on Middle East policy uh, and, and uh, talk about bombings than anyone on the National Security Council. So if we're covering it and saying, uh, and, and Hannity, the Daily Beast said, doesn't need an uh, uh, office in the White House because he's the, one of the president's last phone calls every night. So the president is being tucked in, story. Yeah. tucked in with Hannity. Here's the final thought. I want you to think about this, Mr. President, for the next, and no one else is there, and everyone knows access in, in, the, in the, that rarefied world is power. Uh, so mm -hmm. people covering it for those reasons, um, I think, is a different thing than saying, oh, my God, let's get into little spats with other media, which I, I don't think people, I don't think that adds a lot of value. Mm -hmm. Now, by the way, this is the, the, the question I'm going to read. I'm going to be, I'm on your I like the fact that you try to have um, folks on both sides on your show. But other people don't right. like so it. This is, so. so this is what, the, yeah, so this person says, is having someone li like Bannon or Giuliani on your show just giving them a legitimate platform to share their story? How do the media balance sharing opposing viewpoints versus sharing ones that promote falsehoods and misinformation? Right, and I think it's a fair, very fair question because there are people who lie so much or add so little that I would not have them on. So I accept the framework that there are some people not worth having on. I reject, I guess, within that framework whether... Let's take Jay Sekulow as an example. I just had him on. He is the president's lawyer. And I should say he's one of the president's lawyers who's not currently under criminal investigation. <laughs> now, I am curious. How many people, by show of hands, think he would be worth interviewing in a journalistic environment? Okay. And how many people would say no? All right, so he's on that line. Let's take someone more out there, Bannon, who I just know from doing the interview. When I interviewed Steve Bannon, and this is also context, are we putting someone on and saying, Steve Bannon is here because he's an expert on Jewish-Catholic relations, and he's been building bridges, and it's good, and that's why he's here, like, or is he here for other reasons? Steve Bannon was the number one officer of the Trump campaign in the general election when they won. Yes. He was the chair. Then he was a senior advisor at the White House. Yes. When I interviewed him, on MSNBC, how many times had he ever been on MSNBC in world history? Zero. So, as a lawyer, I'm presenting the case, right? See Brandon every other night lying and trashing people. That's uh, enough of him. It's too much. See Brandon's number one on Trump, which was a campaign that not only the media, but a lot of the political class misunderstood, yes. underestimated. Then they went, then he's in the White House. He's never been on our news channel, and I have him on once. And we shouldn't hear from him, and my viewers shouldn't have the benefit of hearing from him, and not only hear from him, but hear from him in an adversarial questioning environment, I would argue that brings value. Show of hands, how many people think you shouldn't have Bannon on? Should not. Should not. One in the middle, up here, and I respect your view because you can always change the channel, and you can also say, look, it's just, I hear all that, but I disagree. But that, again, is the context. Or um, when we were covering the Mueller probe, and I'm answering through specifics because I think it's bad. Anyone can give a speech about truth. I'm giving you specifics because uh, I think it's I think it's better. During the Mueller probe, we would try to track anyone who talked to Mueller and interview them. And people would say, like, well, who's this bozo? Who's this clown? Who's this criminal? And I'd be like, these are the people Bob Mueller's interviewing. What do you want? Why are you mad at me? 
Now, Jerome Corsi, does it, do people know who he is, or I can give a little background? He's, he, wrote, he wrote the book that set up birtherism years before it became mainline in conservative politics. So he was the right, right conspiracy fringe. He is a racist birther, as I said to his face when he was on the show. Jerome Corsi spent 40 hours with the special counsel team as they pursued the Russian collusion plot. So that's why I had him on. I didn't have him on as an expert on Kenya. <laughs> and I didn't let him go in and lie, and I didn't let him repeat those falsehoods, but I did have two lengthy interviews with him. Wall of special counsel investigation was unfolding, and people were trying to figure out whether there was a back channel to the Russian operation or WikiLeaks. And Roger Stone, allegedly, had said that Corsi was his back channel. And I could get Corsi in. So why wouldn't I interview him about that? The interviews, I thought, were interesting. One of my tests for whether I want to share something with my audience is, do I think it's interesting? Not like, it's like electability. Do you, who, does someone over there like? No, I, I'm fascinated by this. Let me share it with you, tell you why, and you decide if you are. So we had quite a, quite a, a set round of interviews. They're on YouTube if you want to look them up. Then we had Randy Credico on. Have you ever heard of him? And Stone said, no, maybe he's my back channel. So we had Credico on and talked about that. And he said, I'm not his effing back channel. I've interviewed Assange, but I'm not the back channel. So now I've had both of them. And that shed light on this open probe. And then sure enough, who was the last person related to Trump that Mueller indicted? Roger Stone. That was really when they were wrapping up those leads. And there were two people listed as the key witnesses against Stone, person one and person two. They were Corsi and Credico. There's only one show in America that's had both of them on. It's our show. I think we're rightfully proud of that because we were tracking as we went. That's why. But I understand how in isolation you look at one of them and you say, who the hell is he talking to? Um, but that's why we try to think through and share with the viewers what we're doing. Um, I don't want to name anyone because it's not my style, but there are people who represent Donald Trump and habitually lie and don't have fact, witness, knowledge, and aren't involved in anything important, who I don't have on, who I've never had on. So I get that there are lines somewhere. So we've answered this question, but just I want, they'll, they'll want to have, you know, know that we actually uh, uh, got it. Even though freedom of the press is very important, how does the system deal with bias or false press stories? And I think you've actually just addressed um, that. Um, um, here's the flip side, OK? Um, and are you even ever trying to do this? Do you think you ever change some of your guests' minds, like Bannon or Sakhalov? Change their mind? I, mean, I don't think that's my job. Do I, I change I knew, their I, That's minds? what I thought you would say. Do there, does someone come on the show, and through the process of being on the show, is their mind changed? It's great. I, I always like getting questions. I don't even know I've ever been asked that, so I don't know that yeah, I've given a, a lot of thought. interesting question. Um, I certainly think that the more of an advocate they are, the less likely that is. Michael Moore was on the show last night. He's endorsed Bernie. He's speaking this weekend with AOC at a big Bernie rally. Do I think that engaging Michael Moore, I'm going to move him to like another candidate more? Like, no, I don't think that. I think the more that they're committed to a position, the more they're there selling it, and the less likely they're going to change their mind. Now, if you broaden out, I certainly think that it's one of the, one of the great um, benefits or abilities that we have through a TV show that's different than writing and different than other stuff is the way you can bring people together. So we do a Friday segment called Fallback Friday where we bring people together from different walks of life and experiences. I would hope, I would think some of those people's minds evolve 
because I've had them afterwards say, oh my God, I never thought that this musician and I would have so much in common. So for example, I'll do another show of hands, and this is, this is only some people, but how many people have heard of Walk a Flock of Flame, the rapper? Right in front. There, in the, okay, so Walk a Flock of he's not just a rapper, he's like a hardcore rapper, and he represents his, his upbringing and his life if I, there are choruses, most of his choruses I could not quote for you. I mean, I, literally, they're not appropriate. Um, but he's an interesting guy. And so we had him on with former U.S. Senator Russ Feingold. <laughs> and they'd never met. And we brought them together. And, and they, before I got out there, they started talking. And you can't predict. They may or may not hit it off. Two people who are powerful and big in their own space may not. But they end up hitting it off to the point that on air, Feingold says, he doesn't have to say this, he's doing his own thing. He goes, I got to tell you, he goes, maybe in Wisconsin, I'm a little out of it. I actually hadn't heard of this, this young man before, but we just hit it off. He's got such a great story. He's overcome so much. And when I told him about what we're doing on this green environmental program, he says he wants to help, so he might make a song for us. I'm hoping, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, this is great, because I don't know another time Russ Feingold and Walk a Flock of Flame were going to link up. <laughs> so so I, wasn't, I think you can change minds that way. I wasn't going to ask this question, but now I am. In your next life, would you rather come back as a ra great rapper or as Walter Cronkite? <laughs> great question. Um, I would. I don't see myself as a rapper. <laughs> I would love if we're talking like. How many in my great next Jewish life, rappers are there? I don't know. Are there? There was a guy named Remedy mm -hmm. who was in the wider Wu Tang collective, okay. and he was a Jewish rapper. But okay. I don't. I mean, he's not that celebrated. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I would love to go on one of those big tours for six months. I don't know that I, I'm not a musician. And I don't know that if I. Came back another life with an Aladdin wish I'd want to be a musician. I don't even think that's like my style. But I, I would love to go on a tour. I had a friend who toured with David Byrne from Talking Heads. Mm -hmm. And they did five months, four continents. And we, I, so he was the bassist. So I got to link up with him. And it was like looking down the tour list. And he was like, I got you like backstage, whichever, where, wherever you want to go. Uh, which for me, if, if anyone knows my love for music, that was like a, an amazing, uh, very generous offer. So we, I picked um, Paris, and uh, we linked up at the Philharmonique, where David Byrne was playing, saw the show, went out in Paris. And I, and I looked at him, and I was like, what's next? He said, we're going to Berlin next. I was like, so you're, this is just, you're just doing this? And he was like, yeah, this is, this is what we're doing. I think going on a tour like that with a band, whether you're the lawyer or the roadie or whatever, could be like, really fun. OK. Um, uh, this person has this very specific question, but then I'll broaden it out. And the question is about like, you know, wh whether the fellow's going to be shot first and then hanged, or hanged first and then shot. But will Rudy Giuliani be disbarred before he's indicted? Um, <laughs> but, but I'm going to broaden it. Giuliani, discuss. Well, look, Donald Trump's favorite lawyer was disbarred. Roy Cohn, the mafia lawyer in New York, was indicted multiple times, got off sometimes, but it was ultimately disbarred. And in the heat of the Mueller probe, the New York Times reported that Donald Trump said, where's my Roy Cohn? Mm -hmm. I want my Roy Cohn. I got nobody mm -hmm. here going to bat for me. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the most charitable thing you can say about that? As a thought experiment? A great Democratic president who's lauded to this day made his brother attorney general. Mm -hmm. Your brother might be more loyal to you than even Roy Cohn. 
Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and, and and Bobby and Roy Cohn hated each other. Well, that way, too, and the mafia, you know. the, the prosecution, all that. But so before we get too out of joint about everything being the worst thing ever, mm-hmm. the duties of the attorney general may and can conflict with your bloodline. And that really wasn't a proper and appropriate use of presidential power. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Democrats, now you can say, oh, things have changed. Yeah, a lot of things have changed. But even Democrats who lived in that era or older senators who knew... They don't like to talk about that. Um, that was a conflict, obviously. So I say that by way of context, but still, Donald Trump um, is terrible for wanting Roy Cohn in the government. That's still a bad sign. Both things can be true. And so you get out to Roy Cohn was disbarred. Michael Cohen is incarcerated and in jail right now for crimes that he confessed to on behalf of Donald Trump. And Rudy Giuliani is under investigation for, among other things, plotting for things that he thought would benefit Trump, and that Trump, we know from the White House call notes, told the foreign power work with Rudy on. Um, so, you know, I can't predict whether the SDNY has the case or not and how he's going to fight it, um, but I can tell you that it's quite clear the pattern is Donald Trump publicly embracing, using, and celebrating lawyers who will use their legal skills not to uphold the law or tell you how to stay inside the law, but to go up to and over the line. And for the person in America who has the job of, quote, faithfully executing the laws, that's, that's a deeply troubling thing. Great. Now, we've got about five minutes left, so we're going into the lightning round okay. here. With, um, and some of these are very specific legal-like questions, law questions. What are your views on indicting journalists for publishing uh, or leaking classified national security information? Well, when I practiced law and worked for Floyd Abrams, we represented uh, reporters. We dealt with a reporter's privilege case that went up to the Fourth Circuit. Um, So my views are informed by that. And full disclosure, I was an advocate for that as well. Um, So I I think that uh, we have moved far away from the high point of sort of the old line Supreme Court precedents and found recent administrations, particularly the Obama administration, really cracking down and using these these battles to try to at least pressure and get better control of the press. Uh, The Obama administration had more indictments for this Mm -hmm. than the past several combined. Mm -hmm. Some, I would say, were reasonable when you were looking at people who really did leak major classified secrets. Some looked to me, my view, and I'm simplifying, as stretching. Um, So I think that's a huge issue. I think the flip side in fairness is a lot of that law was created when there were better elite gatekeepers. So you had the Times or the Post or someone sitting down and really thinking it through. We're in this one-click, double-blind, WikiLeaks world now. And I don't believe, even as a First Amendment advocate, the law is completely caught up to factor that in, Mm -hmm. which is why it's then been the administration's cracking down. So I am skeptical of abuses in that area. I think if you're a government employee and you break the law, you still obviously are subject. But what we've seen is that creep out over closer and closer to reporters. And then I would remind everyone that some of the checks and systems still work. We know that Donald Trump has repeatedly uh, demanded that reporters be investigated and jailed um, in the Comey memos, um, among others. I don't, I'm not aware of that having happened yet. Um, why not use inherent contempt and send the sergeant arms to arrest those who ignore subpoenas of Congress? Well, in the old days, they, they had more of that. I think that you're seeing right now a lot of people are talking. So the Congress has to make the judgment of, does it want to do something that will be seen as physical and rare and hasn't been done in a long time, which 
would tee up a case to the Supreme Court of a constitutional crisis that Congress will be perceived to be pushing, mm -hmm. rather than trying to gather as much evidence as they can and fight these cases out and see whether they can win. At the end of the day, what's fascinating, as mentioned earlier, about the issues in the Ukraine impeachment is I'm not sure from a strategic legal perspective that you need to go to the mat for any particular witness when you have the whistleblower, Giuliani, Mulvaney, and the president all outlining the core of an extortion bribery plot. Um, uh, the person who asked that question, chapter nine of uh, my book, America's Unwritten Constitution, talks about the sergeant at arms, and uh, Ari's right, hasn't been done for a long time. I wrote this many years ago. I'm for it. And, and the Supreme Court there you go. unanimously upheld it. But I'm for it, whether it's a Democratic president or a Republican president. I wrote this long ago, um, which is why I have more confidence in it, because I know it wasn't influenced by any current political preference. But, but that's old school. And, I, you know, and at the New York Historical Society, you know, the older the better. Um, <laughs> so um, um, would it be a good strategy for House Democrats to assemble all the evidence and not vote to impeach, leave the decision to the voters? I think that's what we discussed earlier, which is, do the voters get a level playing field or not? And even if you don't convict, does going through this process showing that there is accountability in an investigation and congressional reaction make it less likely that the next, from now to the election, that the next time a phone call comes into the Pentagon or the private law firm or God knows where and says, uh, we need this other country to do whatever, someone goes, I, I just saw this thing. I don't, I'm not helping with that. Uh, that's what in law we call deterrence. Um, we've got, I think, time for two more. Okay, great. Um, so um, um, if you ignore a subpoena, see, you're getting all these legal questions, see, because you're a legal expert. If you ignore a subpoena, can you, must you go to jail, even if you're president or working for the president? Well, I think the short answer is the president's a special case. Everyone else is subject to a court system. So it's not usually binary, you know, defy or respond. In, in traditional litigation, you have some debate over what is a, a reasonable and targeted request and how to comply with it and what the schedule is. And that's why lawyers bill out a lot of money to, to have those boring debates that you didn't come out here in the morning to hear. Um, but he, but uh, if your position is complete defiance, the courts have contempt, remedy, jailing you, et cetera. Um, I think officers of the United States is, a, is you know, you, you could remind us the precedents, but I think it's, it tends to be a higher bar because they don't resort immediately to holding uh, them in physical contempt. Um, but as you go down the line, yeah, if you go into the president's accounting firm or normal civilians, yeah, it kicks in like, like any case if you just defy. Do you think, if, um, so we talked about the era of Walter Cronkite and how it's different today, only three <clears throat> networks and now um, many. Back then we had this thing, um, uh, the Fairness Doctrine. Um, do you think the media would be less divisive um, if the Fairness Doctrine were reinstated? And um, is there any realistic possibility of that happening in your view? Well, I think the first question when you look at anything that's going to be mandated is, okay, the government's mandating it. Who does it apply to? Do you want a Fairness Doctrine when you go online? Do you want your Google results split? Do you want to click a link and then have something else pop up and say, here's the other side to this, and how many sides are there? And what is the other side to when life begins? Right? Pro-life and pro-choice is like how politicians talk about it. But what's the other side of, well, is, the, is, is this a baby? 
Is this a heartbeat? Is this six months? Is this eight months? Is this two months? I mean, I don't know what the other side is. I think on the biggest questions in life, the Fairness Doctrine's concept starts to give way to nuance. Um, And I guess as a First Amendment person, I tend to be a little more skeptical of government mandates on that stuff in the first place. I think what you want, and this is a a little pat answer, but like, we want to raise a civil society where we, our Fairness Doctrine is an educated public that knows how to gather information from all sorts of, of sources. Uh, for the record, I'm with him on all of that, and I don't think we should have it for the printed press either. Here's the last question, and I'll take the liberty for answering for both of us, actually. Okay. I think, like, <laughs> should future presidential candidates be required to read and pass a test about the con- Constitution's <laughs> content? And what I'm imagining, Ari, is... You and I should have a show together. Together we could be like the Alex Trebek. You know, I, I love it, you know, and, 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 and wouldn't that be cool? I think that would be great. And uh, since we're at the Historical Society, yes. Uh, from the president on down, everyone knowing uh, at least the aspirations of our founding documents would be a great thing. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.